For our first speaker this afternoon, we're fortunate to have Professor Ian Pohl, who I count as a valued colleague, and we've worked together on many projects. Um, as you heard, Professor Ian Pohl is a past president of the society, so he needs no introduction to most of you. Um, just a bit for those who don't know him, he is currently Professor of Aerospace Engineering and Director of the Cranfield College of Aeronautics at Cranfield University. In addition, he's technical director of a subsidiary of Cranfield University called Cranfield Aerospace Limited, which he was instrumental in starting. He started his career at Imperial College, then into industry at Hawker Siddeley Aviation, and then um, moved to the College of Aeronautics to carry out research on aerodynamics um, under another good friend of the society, Professor John Stollery. He's then... Uh, was at the uh, University of Manchester, which is probably significant in light of the first lecture of today, as Professor of Aerospace Engineering in 1985, and later became head of Manchester's Department of Engineering. So um, he's probably the only one who could have passed the test this morning. Uh, he's a fellow of the Society, a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and a fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. He was awarded the OBE in, in 2002 in recognition of his contributions. Um, you will notice that um, his paper isn't included in the booklet, um, but um, that was because the ink was so wet we couldn't send it to the printers. Uh, but um, it's being printed, and with any luck, touching wood, you should be able to take a copy with you, and that make the, the com a complete set. So, um, Ian, over to you. And of course, the title being Scientific and Technical Aspects of the Rights Achievement. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, the reason that my, uh, my contribution comes along so late is because it's not clear, or it was not clear, how much of my potential talk would be delivered once, if not more than once, before lunch. So uh, the whole thing has been carefully uh, delayed to make sure that we don't bore you by going over the same ground more than once. This bit you have already heard, and there's really no alternative but to remind you of the key technical areas. First was structures, aerodynamics, stability and control, and propulsion. These are the essential elements that you have to get right and that you have to integrate in order to have a successful flying machine. Now, in these areas, the first question I want to address is what were the established positions at the end of the 19th century? Now, we've already heard John Aykroyd's uh, masterly review of some of the aspects of it. But in the 19th century, there were very... There were two very different camps. There were people with a mathematical background who attacked theory. The snag was that almost without exception, the theories that were developed did not produce any immediately useful outcome. And so the consequence of that was that there was a separate division developed which basically uh, tackled the practical applications. Osborne Reynolds, as, as John uh, mentioned this morning, was an interesting case in point where he had to do experimental work uh, because the problems he was tackling, and primarily pipe flow, 
pipe flow related to sewage works and all the important things that, that mattered to cities in the 19th century couldn't be tackled theoretically. And if you were going to design systems, you had to have information. And so people took their jackets off, rolled up their sleeves, and went out and found out what actually happened. So the 19th century was characterized by this dichotomy between the two camps, the theory and the practitioners. Now, if we begin with structures, most engineering, certainly in the second half of the 19th century, was what could be described as substantial. Picture the fourth bridge, just to give you a flavour. The high technology activity was in areas like ships, railways and bridges, all of which fall into the category of substantial. The analytic methods that were used in engineering were limited uh, mainly to the point that you could be satisfied that you had very substantial safety factors. Um, there were some good examples, even in the substantial domain, where safety factors hadn't been sufficient, the Tay Bridge disaster being a good example. So throughout practical engineering at that time, there was a very heavy reliance on uh, suitability for purpose, if I can put it like that, which meant that the, the methods that were employed were not very good at being focused on highly efficient structures. So if you wanted low weight, then you had to look somewhere else. And that somewhere else was primarily empirical. People could design stiff, lightweight structures, but it was more of an art than a science. Nevertheless, it was a, a reasonably highly evolved art. And kites were as good an example of, as any of how far you could go. So man lifting kites, as typified by by Cody on the, the bottom picture there, it was perfectly possible to make a structure out of very uh, flexible materials, a structure which turned out to be stiff and light and which was more than capable of lifting very substantial loads. That point really merely reinforces the issue that although you couldn't use the analytic techniques, you could certainly take some pointers. And of course, bracing was, was the most important pointer. Metals, generally speaking, were too heavy to be used. Uh, the metals commonly employed at that time would be steel. Um, aluminium only became commercially available in around about 1890. So in addition to all the other things that were happening, development of gasoline engines and so on, new materials that would be ultimately extremely useful in aeronautics were themselves only in their infancy and not readily available. Another issue, of course, with wood is that it wasn't the easiest thing to analyze since it's a non-homogeneous material. Aerodynamics, as John has said, aerodynamics from the theoretical uh, side had actually uh, advanced very quickly. Um, Sir George Stokes pictured here uh, and the Navier-Stokes equations, which, which John described this morning, uh, were already well known. They were established. Now, the Navier-Stokes equations are the equations that we use today in aircraft design. 
So even though it was circa 1850 when these things were put together, they were complete and sufficient for the task. The problem was that you couldn't solve the damn things. The, the invention of the digital computer really was the tool that released the power of the 19th century intellect to be used for the applications of 20th and 21st century aeronautics. So the, the interesting thing is that the, the, the basic physics was identified, uh, the equations could be written down, you could pose the boundary conditions, but that was as far as you could go. So such solutions that did exist, and there were one or two special cases, they were of no practical use whatsoever. Lords Kelvin and Rayleigh have already been mentioned. Uh, Kelvin on the left. Um, these gentlemen were both mathematicians. Kelvin was arguably the most famous scientist of the Victorian era. Uh, his name was Thomson, and he was ennobled because of his scientific contributions, which had included things like laying the transatlantic uh, telegraph cable. Uh, Rayleigh was a lord because he was, an, uh, I'll say this, a hereditary peer. He had a baronetcy which he uh, uh, moved to when his father died. But their background was intensely mathematical. Professors in those days uh, were not furnished, generally speaking, with large laboratories. So their principal tool was their brain, and mathematics was the way in which they expressed themselves. Um, neither Thompson nor Rayleigh had large laboratories. In fact, Rayleigh's laboratory was at home. The same was true of Osborne Reynolds. So a university professor in those days tended to work from home. So you mustn't get the idea that they had vast resources at their, their advantage. Samuel Langley, we've already mentioned Langley. I'd like to revisit Langley for a moment because I think that his con contribution was greater than, than may be appreciated. And I, I think, um, by and large, he's had a bit of a raw deal. Langley, as has been said, was arguably uh, the United States' foremost scientist. Therefore, everything that he approached, he approached as a scientist. His reputation, and this is very important, his reputation was based upon skill as an observer and an experimenter. He did not go to a traditional university for an undergraduate course. In fact, he was an apprentice as a civil engineer. And because of that, his background in mathematics was not strong. And that's not to say he was useless at it. It's simply to say that, that when Langley approached a problem scientifically, he took upon himself to make good measurements and to deduce conclusions from his measurements not, like Kelvin and Rayleigh, to go crazy with advanced mathematics. And this starts to give you a flavour for where things were slightly difficult for him. 
I said he was a famous scientist. He, he had, in fact, received the Royal Society's Romford Medal in 1886. So not only was he famous in the USA, he was famous in the UK. And he was a contemporary and a colleague of Kelvin and Rayleigh. His target in his aerodynamic work was to separate facts from fantasy, which was no mean objective in those days. Because he had a scientific base, he started with the problem at the base of, of what he considered were the principal difficulties, that Newton's sine-squared law. Was this correct? Because if it was, flying was going to be a rather difficult thing. If it was not true, then either flying would be totally <coughs> impossible or it would be possible within the confines of 19th century technology. That was the key question. And like all scientists, he began by reducing the number of independent variables to the absolute minimum. So he chose a flat plate. Then he invented some very sophisticated instruments in order to get some good data. On that data, he would then draw conclusions. Now, Langley, uh, unlike Kelvin and Thompson and his UK um, contemporaries, worked in an astronomy department, and they had a telescope, and they had all the necessary backup for instrument making and all the, the things that were needed in order to support astronomical observations. And he used this opportunity to build a whirling table or a whirling arm. He proved that Newton's relation did not hold for a flat plate and discovered that the lift-to-drag ratios were much better than those implied by um, the sine-squared law. He demonstrated in doing this that fixed-wing flight was possible within current technology. Now, of course, everybody knows that birds fly. That wasn't the point. The question was, with what they had then, circa 1890, was it possible? And he demonstrated that it was indeed possible. He then discovered Langley's Law. More of that in a moment. But most importantly, he wrote a comprehensive, detailed book called Experiments in Aerodynamics, which was published by the Smithsonian and which was reviewed by Lord Rayleigh in Nature. Now, this is something that he should be given a lot of credit for because being a scientist, he went for the usual peer review. And, of course, since Rayleigh knew nothing about experiments, he didn't get a particularly warm reception. Now, this must have been quite difficult for him because... Uh, Getting a thumbs down from Lord Rayleigh in nature is not the greatest uh, accolade for a senior scientist. And the problem that he had was this so-called Langley's Law. This was at the root of it. Because his whirling arm measurements had brought him to the conclusion that the faster a wing moves through the air, the lower the power requirement necessary to maintain the speed. And most people thought this was balmy. Kelvin, at the British Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in August 1894, 
uh, basically said it was impossible. And, I mean, I, one of the speakers earlier this morning mentioned this, this 1894 meeting. Kelvin apparently got up and, and did a lot of mathematics on the blackboard and, of course, disproved whatever um, Langley was saying. The trouble with Kelvin was he wasn't always right. And some of the mathematics that they got involved in, and particularly mathematics you do by jumping up and writing on the blackboard at international meetings, is more often wrong than it is right. <laughs> However, the chairman of that session was Rayleigh. And Rayleigh was a little more um, helpful to Langley by saying, well, basically, if you are right, then you should be able to build an aeroplane, shouldn't you? Bear in mind, this was said in public at one of the world's most prestigious meetings and was a discussion amongst the world's most prestigious scientists. If you'd been in Langley's shoes, what would you have done? Incidentally, before we leave this, Langley's law, uh, whilst it may have seemed fantastic and irrational uh, in 1894, when viewed with hindsight, those of you who know anything about aerodynamics will know that if you have a finite aspect ratio wing, then there is a speed at which the drag is minimum. And if you are traveling at a speed below the minimum drag speed, then lo and behold, the power that you need to propel the wing decreases as the flight speed increases. So, with 50 years' worth of hindsight, Langley's law is not impossible. In fact, it only serves to tell us that the measurements he was making happened to be in a section of the power-velocity curve for the wings that he tested, where he was below the minimum power speed. So, you see... Uh, this is why I think he had a slightly harsh time, because I think all his measurements were absolutely accurate. Nevertheless, he moved on now uh, with his reputation on the line, saying, look, of course, I know I've got enough aerodynamic lift to do this. And he then spent several years developing the vehicle that he called the aerodrome. And aerodrome number five, again, we heard about it earlier on, uh, had a 4.2 metre wingspan. It wasn't really a model aeroplane. I mean, this is quite a substantial vehicle by any, by any standards. And had a one horsepower steam engine. And it was catapult launched. And on the 6th of May, 1896, it flew for approximately two minutes. Uh, in fact, until the burner fuel ran out. Covered a distance of over a thousand metres at an altitude of about 35 metres completed three full circles and landed gently and safely. In fact, they picked it up, cleaned it down, refueled it, and did flew it in exactly the same way for a second time on that day. And I think it's beyond dispute that that was the first unpiloted, engine-driven, heavier-than-air vehicle of substantial size. Now, it's not fair to compare this achievement to the rubber band-powered aeroplanes of anybody else. Um, and I think that, that, you know, we should just measure our criticism of Langley um, 
in that in the light of that uh, that achievement. <laughs> so Langley wasn't an engineer; he was a scientist, and. Again, I'm only echoing what was said earlier. It's a pity he didn't stop while he was ahead. And he did not want to go any further. I think he had satisfied himself and probably Rayleigh and Kelvin that actually uh, there was something in this. Um, and uh, I, I believe that political pressure and the fact that he was Secretary of the Smithsonian and when he was asked to do something by government, he really felt obliged to do it that pushed him to the next and, and fairly uh, disastrous level. But I think Langley's had very bad press. And if we take anything away from today, in addition to the wonderful achievement of the Wright brothers, it's that Samuel Langley deserves uh, a little more recognition for what he did than he's actually been accorded so far. So aerodynamics, really, in the 1890s, was in a very poor way. We had some good data, courtesy of Langley, but it was for the wrong shapes. The data that we had for the better shapes, as we now know, was horribly inaccurate. And there was no understanding of wind tunnel corrections or scaling laws. And I'll come back to this in a minute. Stability and control was the second big issue, or the third rather. No formal academic understanding of what stability and control really meant. There was no theory, there was simply the, the, the practical observations that some gliders did well and some did not do so well. The need for stability appreciated from gliders and powered models. So we knew it was necessary, but this was based on gliders and powered models only. The aft-mounted tail had been pioneered by Cayley and Peno. Wing dihedral was something that Langley and Lanchester had advocated on their model tests, and center of gravity movement had been the thing that Lilienthal had used. Power and propulsion. Steam engines were highly evolved at that time, but had a relatively low power-to-weight ratio. Langley actually produced a one-horsepower motor that weighed just 26 ounces giving it a power-to-weight ratio of 0.6 horsepower per pound. That is good by modern engine standards. So the steam engine, although it took a long time, was eventually capable of producing the necessary power-to-weight ratios. However, the gasoline engines, of course, were developing rapidly, being formally invented by Daimler and Benz in 1885, but by the time the Wright brothers were looking, the power-to-weight ratios were still too low. Of course, there's more to it than the engine. You actually have to get the engine to move air in order to propel your device. And propulsion was also a bit of a black art at that time. There were no design methods for propellers because there were no theoretical methods. Rankin's actuator disc theory and ship screw theory were there, but they were of very little use for the aircraft. Empiricism, again, was the only way. Okay, so given that as the background, what did the Wrights actually contribute? Their approach was not scientific, as I've said, so what was it? 
The rights set out to build a successful flying machine are not necessarily to understand the science of flight, and I guess that makes them engineers. We've heard this this morning too, that the aeroplane owes more to the bicycle than it does to science. I think that's almost beyond dispute now. The experience with the bicycle meant that they understood lightweight design and the need for rigidity. You can't have a flexible bicycle and you can't have a bicycle that you can't pick up. They also had workshop experience. They knew how to work with these materials at the scale at which they needed to operate. They understood the need for systems that exhibited high mechanical efficiency. Because if it's human-powered, efficiency is always very important. And they knew the importance of stability and handling characteristics. It's not just stability or lack of stability. It's handling characteristics. You want the thing to go where you want it to go. A bicycle is a bit more like it. A bicycle is very good for that. So in structures, they adopted the pioneering approach of others. They took the kite-like wire-braced biplane proposed by Chanute. Uh, that was simple and cheap to build, easy to repair, and flexible enough to allow wind warping for control. They didn't invent the structure. The structure already existed. They looked around, chose the best for the task, and got on with it. Aerodynamics. They began by accepting the results available to them. You should never believe anything that you read in the papers. That is still true. As they progressed, they realized that something was horribly wrong because the machines they were making did not perform according to expectations. They knew this because they had their predictions for lift and drag and they were doing flight tests. They could see just from the angle at which the vehicle settled that something was wrong. Impeded by that erroneous Smeaton coefficient, uh, the value they used was 40% too big. But if they'd looked in Langley's book, it was perfectly clear what the correct answer was. Langley had, he didn't, use, he didn't call it Smeaton coefficient, but the way he presented his results in his 1891 book allowed you to work out the Smeaton coefficient in 30 seconds flat, and it is exactly the one that it should have been to give the correct answers. So it wasn't quite such a mystery. The unsatisfactory flight tests in the summer of 1901 convinced them that the aerodynamic predictions were wrong. We heard that just before lunch. And as you saw with the picture of the bicycle, they, mount, they developed this force balance, uh, starting with the bicycle just to get the idea. And then they built this small crude wind tunnel and tested a series of 38 models Single surfaces with various camber and plan forms, plus some multiplane arrangements over a three-week period. In that three weeks, amongst other refinements, they clearly identified the importance of wing aspect ratio. Again, they only had to look in Langley's book to see the importance of wing aspect ratio. But nevertheless, lessons learned the hard way are often learned better than they are if you, if you simply pick them up easily. 
I'm, I'm, I'm a bit puzzled about the wind tunnel because those of you who've tried to do aerodynamic experiments will know that a wind tunnel on that scale does not give you very much of great use. There must have been more to it than just making measurements. How did they get data from that funny-looking tunnel? It's, those models were far too small. The Reynolds numbers, for, for those of a technical uh, mind, were at least an order of magnitude below full-scale values. And the impact of Reynolds number must have been significant. So I'm, I'm impressed but bemused. And it isn't true to say that they invented wind tunnel testing and that they were great wind tunnel testers. They, they divined something from these tests which went beyond just writing down numbers. And I'm not sure what that was. If the measurements they made were, were, were uh, uh, deficient in some way, there was also the issue for corrections for wall effects. Anybody who does wind tunnel tests knows now how difficult it is to change the measurements that you make into data which are usable at full scale in flight. It is still a major problem. It was a major problem in 1901 as well. The next question is, why did they do no more model tests? After the three-week period, they stopped testing, and as far as I know, they never did any more wind tunnel tests, which is also strange. Nevertheless, perhaps, perhaps there are people out there who can throw some light on that, but I certainly don't understand it. Except that, that my suspicion is that, that it wasn't as good as we tend to believe that it was, and they didn't go back to it because they weren't really getting any extra information. So, conclusions. The Wrights used their wind tunnel to refine, in some sense, an understanding of aerodynamic design. The results were too crude to be of scientific significance, and they have never been adopted into the scientific literature as far as I know. And they never sought to contribute that knowledge to the knowledge pool by publication. Very different from Langley's approach. Everything Langley did, he did in the glaring lights of publicity. And so when he had a failure, it was something that everybody knew about. If the Wrights had a failure, there was nobody down at Kitty Hawk taking photographs or making notes or writing unkind things about them in the paper. Stability and control. The Wrights wanted to be pilots. We've heard that. Which is, which is one of the fundamental reasons for their success. Everything that they did was done to support their ability to fly. There was, there was no other target. The focus was always flight. And in doing this, the approach combined the Lilienthal and Langley methods to great advantage. So they used the Lilienthal stuff where it made sense and rejected it where it did not make sense and vice versa. And thanks to the bicycle, they knew that they could pilot an unstable airplane. They flew it unstably because it was the only way that they could stop it from hitting the ground when they were so close to the ground. The, the original Wright flyer could not be flown very far because you were continuously fighting to keep it off the floor. 
but that was the only way that you could get long-distance flights. So the first, the first flight of a controlled aeroplane was, in fact, an unstable controlled aeroplane. The Wright brothers recognized, again, as we said, an aeroplane needs to be banked to turn. Just as importantly, they realized that if you rolled, you also yawed, and therefore you had to be able to correct that yaw. So they recognized the value of a properly banked turn. It wasn't just enough to roll. They wouldn't have got very far if that's all they'd done. They recognize that too much stability makes control difficult and it increases the sensitivity to gusts. Hence my comment that they destabilized their vehicle to avoid these very problems. Recognize that wings can be stalled. They also recognized that you could unstall them. All of which were things which really hadn't been appreciated hitherto. Power and propulsion, gasoline technology was available. It wasn't quite good enough for their needs. So it wasn't off the shelf, but with a, with a bit of application, they managed to produce something that did the job. Contrasting very sharply with the experiences of Cayley and Langley, who had spent many, many years trying to overcome the propulsion problem. So much so that it really diverted them from the other things. And they recognized that efficient propellers could be designed using their wing data, so they didn't have to invent anything else to solve the propulsion problem. So, the Wright brothers. They used that which was available. They did not work on anything that they didn't have to. So in this regard, in modern jargon, they were systems integrators. And then they were concept demonstrators and they invented the concept of flight test and development. The Wrights were definitely not scientists, which is probably just as well. Because as with the steam engine 60 years earlier, the demonstration of a viable machine attracted the attention of the scientific community. The explanation of why then allowed rapid developments. So, this in no way detracts from their achievement. Indeed, the scientific advances that flowed from their work are the real legacy of their contribution. And when, as we heard this morning, there are people who say, ah, but I was in New Zealand and I flew 10 years before the Wright brothers. The real test is, well, what's the legacy of that? And as far as I know, it doesn't matter who did what, whether it be South Africa, Timbuktu, the only legacy and the only thing that really matters is the legacy that flowed from the right. And that's their greatest achievement. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Ian, for providing more insights into the accomplishment of the Wright brothers. And Ian is looking for potential founder members of the SLAS, the Samuel Langley Appreciation Society. <laughs> um, any questions for Ian right now? Yes, one here. It's, uh, it's Paul Chapman again. Um, the wind tunnel tests, 
Have you considered that what they actually did was to run a whole series of comparative tests and then use that for doing trade-off studies to try to get the best arrangement rather than drawing down pure data? They oh, absolutely, Paul. But, but even comparative tests at, at, though, at that scale and, and in the quality of airflow that it must have had, it stretches my credibility a little. I mean, I'm not, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not being absolutely definitive about this, but, but anybody who has tried to do any kind of test at that scale knows that the quality of the results you're getting is not great. Um, so it's a, it's a little, it's a bit of a mystery. Oh yes, completely in agreement, but... Um that was probably why they did so many tests, was, was, was to look at, look at all the options. Yeah. The other... I mean, the claim was that they changed camber and they increased leading edge thickness. Well, okay, that's fine if you're running at the right Reynolds number, but if you're, if you're at least an order of magnitude down, I'm not sure that you would get the correct physical behavior, let alone uh, you know, the ability to measure results accurately. But nevertheless, something came out of those tests which transformed the vehicle that followed. So it, it's just the, the only messages that don't necessarily assume that wind tunnel tests performed by the right are like the wind tunnel tests that we perform today. There was, there was probably a big difference. And the question just in front there. Kit Mitchell, Farnborough Branch. Um, it seems to me, having read the Wright brothers' papers, that we often don't give enough recognition to the effort that they put into learning how to fly the aeroplane in 04 and 05 after they got something that was in theory flyable in 03. I mean, it took them a year and roughly a 100 flights to achieve the first 360-degree turn. Up till then, they were turning 180 and landing downwind, and it was only in 05 that they could actually fly around the field several times and run out of fuel. And really, as demonstrators that flight was possible, as comes out so wonderfully in the film of the Reams meeting, they had to do that learning to fly. And I suspect that was as much an achievement as the tech getting the technology right to make it possible. No, oh, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I mean, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, this, because uh, in a sense, they tailored the vehicle to give handling qualities that they were comfortable with. It, the, the vehicle didn't present them with feel or, or response. They made it do something that they felt comfortable with. And, it, and in fact, that's, a, that's an issue that we still have today. Uh, given that you can give an aeroplane any handling qualities that you choose to, to uh, bestow on it, what should you actually do? And uh, that's a problem which is still going 100 years later. There's a question down here at the front. I'd like to congratulate you on a most elegant presentation. But there's just one thing which you might like to comment on. In 1899, they said they would learn to fly in four years. That, as far as I know, is the only aeronautical project that's been on time. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yes, it's, it's one of the less enviable statistics of, uh, 
of aeronautics that things things rarely end up on time or even less rarely on budget. Right. There you go. Christopher Lamar. At the risk of touching on another subject, may I add one point of the inheritance by Concord of what the Wright brothers discovered, if I've got it right, that the rudder operates with roll control. So as they apply left wing warp, they discovered that uh, the, the upgoing wing stalled, and in order to overcome the problem, they link the rudder into the movement, same on Concord. Uh, well, if it's not actually linked directly, it's usually linked through the pilot's feet. Incidentally, as, as, as bicycle people, since when you ride a bike, your feet are fully occupied, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Wrights never used their feet for control. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but, uh, but, but they certainly recognize that if, if, you, if you did this wing warping and went into a roll, then you would immediately, if you did nothing about it, have a severe adverse yaw, which would which would get you in a, in a difficult position. And so they had they they counteracted the yaw with opposite rudder, as just exactly as we do today, because they were so close to the ground that if you had any problems at all, you were you were in. I mean, <laughs> there was no no breathing space at all. Question here. John Aykroyd, one thing they did get out of their wind tunnel tests was doubling the aspect ratio between uh, glider number two and glider number three. Uh, this business about Langley's law, I agree with you, it is correct. Uh, and in fact, it's the same as the induced drug relation. Uh, I had an argument with Ian just before lunch, actually, about the importance of viscosity, which in fact Lanchester pointed out to Wilbur Wright at Reims in 1909, I think it was, and they had a glorious row over it, and Wilbur refused to accept that viscosity had any significant effect whatsoever. And I think he got this largely from Langley. Well, that, that may have been the case. Certainly in, in Langley's um, Experiments in Aerodynamics book, um, it's perfectly clear when they test plates at very low angle of attack where viscosity becomes dominant, uh, Langley's instrument is really uh, not accurate at all. So you see the data suddenly, as they always do when the, when the instrument fails, become random. But, but Langley does say that it's viscosity. Uh, he, he simply says that, that under these conditions, uh, his, his uh, devices can't measure it, therefore it's small. Fair enough. Thank you. Um, to be fair, the last question from the back. I think you had a question. Thank you. Uh, Daryl Penthouse, Short Brothers Commemoration Society. Um, I've always been puzzled about the fact that uh, the Wright brothers insisted on the aircraft being unstable. Now, the Dunn uh, wingless, tireless thing uh, was certainly stable. Now, was it Wilbur Wright or was... Captain Dunn, right. Well, they were both right, I suspect. The, the, I think the, well, again, we can, de we can debate this later, but I think the predominant problem was the sensitivity to gusts. I mean, they flew in, in, in fairly gusty conditions, only a few feet above the ground. And I think the, the, the reason for the, uh, to be trimmed in an unstable condition was so that the pilot 
could put in control demands and get instant response from the, from the vehicle. As I say, you couldn't have flown it very far or for very long like that, but it, it, it got them over the problem of trying to avoid the ground. I, th I think that was it. But could you retain your questions for the um, general session at the end, please? Once again, Ian, thank you so much, not only for providing fascinating technical aspects behind the story, but also being brave enough to ask questions that you admitted you couldn't answer. So thank you very much. One of the questioners was remarked upon the uh, timeliness of projects and um, it reminded me of something that came up very early on in, in, in the introduction which reminds me of the cracking pace at which the Royal Aeronautical Society operates at. Um, they recognised the Wright brothers, the first people to recognise the Wright brothers in 1903 and got around to awarding them a medal in 1909. <laughs>